Dorothy is in charge of putting together her women's club's biggest fundraiser of the year, and so far it's not going great. She can't find talent or even a host. To help her friend, Rose promises to provide her the host of all hosts, Bob Hope. The girls are confused, but then humor Rose's fantasy about her famous father, but are eventually left frustrated by her childish daydreaming. Will Dorothy's event go well? Will Blanche start giving tours of the golf club locker room? Will Bob Hope show up as his daughter expects? All of that and more in today's episode, You Gotta Have Hope. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the mysteries that come and go. Before we can even press play on the episode, we must talk about the title. It's a common phrase to say, you gotta have hope, just like keep the faith, or you gotta have faith, faith, faith. But in this instance, it's a play on the song, You Gotta Have Heart, which appeared in the 1956 Tony Award-winning musical, Damn Yankees. You gotta have heart, miles and miles and miles of heart. Puff the Magic Dragon started out as a poem before being written into a hit song by the 1960s folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary. And no, the references of puff, paper, the sea, or dragon are not in relation to the sea cannabis. It had been written by 19-year-old Leonard Lipton, who wound up getting 50% song credit, and he swore it was about growing up and the awkward hardships around it. Why do I mention Puff? Because we are in an exciting and unexpected new location. After panning across a banner that reads Variety Show Benefit, a man who looks very familiar, except for the red Hawaiian shirt and ukulele, is singing Puff. He looks familiar because that man is Andre Rosie, and we discussed Andre during Brother Can You Spare That Jacket, where he played Michael Jackson's bodyguard. Andre had quite the acting and vocal range, as he isn't a guard here, but a very, very high-pitched singer. I always like seeing a return guest actor. It makes me think they were super cool, and everyone on the set liked them, so they get the stamp of approval from the girls. Turning away from Andre, we find Rose in a bright green jacket with square lines, Dorothy in a white blouse or a dress with a taupe cover, and Blanche, who looks like the solid gold of a solid gold dancer in a gold suit. And they are all stunned, just stunned, at how odd that performance was. When Andre realizes he probably won't be invited to perform in the variety show, he offers to up his steroid use so he can sound like the writer, actress, and country singer Hall of Famer, Barbara Mandrell. If you're not ready for falling, then you better be careful when the love starts calling. Take my advice, love is thin ice. Unfortunately, that won't get him in the show. 
Dorothy tells him, but oh boy, it will earn him everyone's dessert if he were to ever end up in prison. I can only assume she's implying that he would sound more feminine and would therefore be the most popular. Yeesh, Dorothy. With a confused and rightfully disgusted look, Andre leaves. Dorothy can't be bothered with his feelings. She is stressed about the variety show. She's been put in charge of it from her women's auxiliary group, which is basically a social group, or as my friend Matt and I like to point out, because we have no concept of what these groups are, we compare them to similar ones. You know, a women's auxiliary. It's like a Lions Club, which is like the Elks Club, so on and so forth. The reason for Dorothy's stress is that she is supposed to put on a show, and she doesn't even have one act to put on the stage, let alone a variety of them. After Dorothy vents, Rose says that she wishes that she was still in St. Olaf. No, not because they have a lot of talent, although we have heard of juggling herrings, among other acts. It's because if they were there, it would be lunchtime. But they're in Miami, so it's actually after lunch? Did they forget to eat, or does she just want a two-hour lunch? Either way, she's craving a herring sandwich. Hopefully not one from the juggling act. Next to audition is Sophia? who is looking adorable in an all-baby pink dress and cardigan. Dorothy's lack of a warm welcome, greeting her mother with a, what the hell are you doing here, earns an equally warm response of, oh, I was able to chew through my restraints and get past the guard dog. Dorothy has learned from Sophia just how mean you can be about someone's abilities or lack thereof. To Sophia's proclamation that she'll be in the show, Dorothy scoffs, You can't sing, dance, tell jokes, perform in any way that anyone would want to see. Ouch. So, no, even though she is always wanting and trying to, Sophia cannot be in the show. Parroting back the, you can't be in the show, Sophia compares Dorothy's dismissal to that of Mr. Ricky Ricardo from I Love Lucy. Because, yes, every week she was trying to find a way, whether through disguise, stowaway, or accident, to perform in Ricky's dinner show. And what's weird is she did perform the show pretty often because of her sneaky doings. And it was always great. You know, I don't know. Did you watch Lucy? Coco? I've seen a lot of it. I think I've seen them all. Yeah. My sister was pretty into I Love Lucy when I was young. Yeah. So I grew up watching all of them. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny because every time she was there, it was either a huge scene. And so people went crazy or she did have actual talent and it worked out. So you would think at some point he would have been like, you know what? Actually, let's avoid all the fighting about it. Just come be in the show. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) He's got some explaining to do. That's right. (laughs) How dare you say that to me? (laughs) What did I say? I don't know, but how dare you? Sophia can't disagree with Dorothy's declaration of her lack of talent, so she has shifted her focus into being a talent agent, something she wonders aloud why actor Ryan O'Neill hadn't done. Ryan O'Neill was famous in the 70s for Love Story and Paper Moon, but his star power didn't stay. In the 1980s, he appeared in several films, which he was openly regretful of, claiming he only took the roles to pay his alimony and child support. Fifty years after Love Story, Ryan and his co-star, Ali McGraw, took the stage together and soon after wound up on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Ryan has since pivoted into making bank in real estate. Coco, you know a little bit more of the darker backstory to the O'Neills. 
Do you care to enlighten us even a little bit? I'm going to try not to use swears so we don't have to beep them out. (laughs) Okay. Ryan O'Neill is an extremely abusive father, husband, person. Pretty Um, notoriously so. Pretty notoriously, Yeah. yeah. He was destroyed when his daughter Tatum won an Oscar for her performance in the same movie, Paper Moon, that they were both Mm -hmm. in. And wasn't she like the youngest at the time? I think she remains the youngest. She was 10 and he wasn't even nominated. And his ego is such that he was... He couldn't celebrate her. In any way. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that was one thing I read this morning after, they met, after I heard that reference in the episode was that she, she felt completely alone after she, she won the Oscar because her, her mother was silent on the subject and her father wouldn't recognize it. So she, could, she, she never even got to, to have that accomplishment. Right. And yeah. then uh, Ryan O'Neill was married to Farrah Fawcett. Did you say that? Oh, no. I don't yeah. know that I knew that. Yeah. Or they were together for a very long time. Okay. I don't know if it was official, but they were together for a very long time. And I think maybe they got back together when she was diagnosed with, with terminal cancer. Oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. Which is part of the part of the part of his thing uh, is that the kids were saying, oh, this, it was very obvious that it was for to, to get into the will. Right. So, or or the sympathy or the attention or yeah. I'll be on the cover of people with her, you know, being supportive at her side, some crap like that. And then this is from 2009, updated in 2011. This is after uh, or at Farrah Fawcett's funeral. This is Ryan O'Neill speaking to uh, someone who was interviewing him. I had just put the casket in the hearse and I was watching it drive away when a beautiful blonde woman comes up and embraces me. I said to her, you have a drink on you? You have a car? She said, Daddy, it's me, Tatum. I was just trying to be funny with a strange Swedish woman, and it's my daughter. It's so sick. And then Tatum said, That's our relationship in a nutshell. You make of it what you will. It had been a few years since we'd seen each other, and he was always a ladies' man. So he is at his partner's funeral, doesn't look up enough at this woman to even see that it's his own daughter, and is like, hey, you want to go hook up in your car and get drunk? That's Ryan O'Neill for you right there. Ugh. That's the man. More jokes about him. Oh, boy, that must have killed him on Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. The biggest show. And to have him be the butt of a joke. Yeah. Ooh. Yikes. What a jerk. He sucks. Don't buy his real estate. <laughs> the first act Sophia is representing is the Donatello triplets. With a welcoming announcement, the three ladies, all with acoustic guitars in hand, solid gold dresses and booties on, their makeup and hair for the gods, enter the room. The Donatello triplets are being played by the Del Rubio triplets, Elena, Edie, and Millie. As a team, they found success in the 80s with their covers of popular songs. From the 1940s to 60s, they performed under the name Boyd Triplets. During that time, they appeared on several Bob Hope specials and on David Letterman and Good Morning America, among others. Keeping the family band together was a top priority, so none of them ever married or had children. The band gained such popularity and was so joyous, they earned appearances on The Red Skelton Hour, Married with Children, Christmas at Pee Wee's Playhouse, Life Goes On, Night Court, Full House, Ellen, and Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Here, they are performing one of their most loved covers, The Neutron Dance, which was originally put out by the Pointer Sisters in 1985. 
The catchy song and performance is a great act for the show, so the girls want to get them signed up. Sophia dismisses her new clients so she can seal the deal. Negotiations get off to a rough start when Sophia learns that this event is for charity. Ew. Without any further argument, Dorothy dismisses Sophia and the triplets and asks for the next act to step up. And up next are the Skarklevich brothers. Stepping up to the ladies wearing a black leotard and weight belt holding juggling pins is Misha Skarlaikovich, who is being played by Daniel Rosen. He appeared in Dolly, CBS Summer Playhouse, Head of the Class, Nash Bridges. He's also a writer and worked on Straussman and The Late Show. What's Dolly? Not the genetically engineered lamb. <laughs> I would guess it's Dolly Dolly. Parton Parton? Dolly is an American variety show starring Dolly Parton that aired on ABC from September 27, 1987 to May 7, 1988. Guest stars included Tammy Wynette, Merle Haggard, Tyne Daly, Bruce Willis, Emmylou Harris, Linda Ronstadt, Tom Petty, Juice Newton, Tom Selleck, the Neville Brothers, Dudley Moore, Oprah Winfrey, so on and so forth. That sounds like a really good show. I would really like to see some Please of that. Please pull up the Wikipedia for it because she's sitting on an ABC camera. Her waist is goofily microscopic. Her chest is huge. Her shoulders are to the sky. The proportions are insane. The top of a like a big like news camera or a TV show camera is not really a uh, seat. It's not. Yeah, it doesn't like it doesn't allow the body to sort of chill. relax into it. Yes, she looks scared. This is Dolly Parton. For you ladies, I'm going to be wearing some pretty spectacular gowns, and for you men, I'm going to be wearing some pretty spectacular gowns. <laughs> We got some great stuff like Pee Wee Herman and Hulk Hogan, and I'll see you in a minute. Tonight, I'm really, really happy to have Bob Hope here because of all the people in show business, he is my very favorite. Ah, uh, excuse me, ma'am. You got a permit for those? The guns, I mean. <laughs> What are you talking about, city slicker? I'm showing my wares, but not nearly as well as you are. Misha is happy to perform, but his brother was unable to get there from Poland. Before he starts, Misha gives the disclaimer that the act would be better if his brother was with him. Nevertheless, he starts the act with a, hey! He juggles the pins around impressively before turning, as he would have with his brother, but since he's alone, he simply throws the pins into the wall and continues his arm movements as though they were being returned to him. He looks back to the ladies, and like Velma in Chicago, he tells them that it would have been better if his sibling was there. Watch this. Now you have to imagine it with two people. It's well with two people. First, I. Then she. Seeing just how disappointing the pool of applicants is, Sophia tells them to give her a call if they change their mind about the triplets. Back at the house, Blanche has come into the kitchen in her long pink sweater and white pants to tell Dorothy, who is sitting at the table in a plaid button-up and purple sweater, that they don't have an MC or a master of ceremonies to host the show. They had been planning on using the local weatherman to do the job, but he got called to the big gig, doing the weather on the Today Show. 
It seemed Willard Scott, the weatherman and celebrator of 100th birthdays, had been mailed some scallops, which he then ate. They, of course, made him sick, and he barfed them up on the air and onto film and book critic and master of the mustache, Gene Shalit. Gene was unaware of the bivalve ingestion and assumed that the vomit attack was due to the men's disagreement of the film The Accidental Tourist, which was a 1988 rom-drom that was based off of a 1985 novel of the same name. It stars William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, and Gina Davis. It was more of a hit for critics as it earned only $32 million at the box office, but it also earned two Golden Globe and four Oscar nods, both of which included Best Picture. Sometimes the road of life takes a few unexpected turns. You know I love you, but I can't live with you anymore. I want a divorce maker. But in the end, life is no accident. What do you do, Mr. Leary? I write travel guidebooks. Accidental tourist. Oh, yes. You're my hero. My entire life, that movie looked like the most boring thing on the planet. I've, I'm a huge, I watch movies constantly. I've yeah. never had one moment of like, of I'll desire. throw that on. Yeah, what's that's like for me in the English patient too. Oh yeah. No thanks. Yeah, so Wikipedia is like, um, William Hurt, he's middle-aged, he's a travel writer, whose life and marriage have been shattered by the tragic death of his son. Sounds like an Apple TV Plus show. It sounds like every Apple TV show. Learning this bit of bad news, Dorothy is full of regret for even agreeing to run the event. They don't have a host. They don't have any good acts. And because of this, they aren't selling any tickets. Just then, Sophia arrives with some actual good news. She has decided as the agent that the triplets can perform without a fee. Of course, Dorothy, knowing her mother, wants to know what the catch is. This ticks Sophia off. Not because Dorothy would assume that, because of course there's a catch, but it's the fact that she went there first before Sophia could even start to bargain around the catch. Well, the catch is the great Alfonso, who Sophia has to call for several times before he bursts through the door in a magician's tuxedo with a gold vest, red ascot, and top hat. Yes, he bursts, but... He's not worthy of an Ellen stopping by. I make the rules. After Sophia reminds him of his name, he's still confused, so she moves on to the act. Pull the damn rabbit out of the hat. With a few magic words or variations thereof, some abracadabras and hiccus pickus, he looks at his hat and realizes he doesn't know where that damn rabbit is. Maybe it's in the other hat. Playing Seymour, a.k.a. the great Alfonso, is Douglas Seal. He was known for stage and screen performances. After serving in World War II, he took up acting and eventually wound up earning a Tony nomination for his Broadway performance in Noises Off. On the screen, you would find him in Amadeus, Cheers, Growing Pains, Ernest Saves Christmas, Family Ties, Ghostbusters 2. He was also the voice of our favorite rotund daddy Sultan in Disney's Aladdin. He most importantly appeared in Alf Loves a Mystery, which featured our own Betty White along with Shannon Doherty and the Smurfs, among many others. Friday. Guess what? Elf's throwing a party. That's right. What a guy. Charm, I'm sure. All your favorite stars are going to be there because they're on the trail of treasure. With clues from the stars of all the new Saturday morning shows. So stay home Friday for Elf Loves a Mystery. We'll be seeing Douglas again next season in Twice in a Lifetime, where he will play Malcolm. 
Scampering off, Seymour goes to find his lost rabbit. Blanche breaks the news to Sophia that this guy is terrible. She defends him. He is not. Oh, you mean his magic act? Yeah, that sucks. This leads to Dorothy realizing what the catch is. Seymour is Sophia's new beau. They can have the triplets appear in the show without cost, and in exchange, the great Alfonso will also get some stage time. Blanche calls Sophia out for blackmail. Sophia reminds her, well, that's show business. Coming in from the back garage pantry secret door is Rose, wearing all periwinkle except for her yellow shirt under her sweater. Checking in with the girls, Blanche tells her the bad news about the weatherman. This sends Dorothy into an emotional spiral. Unfortunately, she's not really concerned with the fact that if they have a bad show, they won't raise money for whatever charity they're working for, but she's more worried about being embarrassed by her mean friends and her little girl group. Offering to help, Rose asks if she should ask Bob Hope to host. Dorothy can't begin to guess how Rose would be able to snag such an MC, and that's when the bomb is dropped. Oh, she can get him because he's her father. What? A bizarre statement, even for Rose. This declaration is met with stunned silence by the girls and giggles from the audience. After gathering herself, Blanche asks Rose if she has been washing the carcinogenic pesticides off of her fruit, or if that could be to blame for her brain rot, which is clearly occurring. Well, she's not positive he's her father, but he maybe could possibly be. Dorothy, frustrated and confused, squeaks out a, What the hell are you talking about? And now for some backstory to Rose. From birth until she was eight years old, she was living in the St. Olaf Orphanage. For all of those years, she was just waiting for Gunter and Alma to adopt her. Now I'm worried if she's been sniffing glue on top of not washing her produce because she said her parents were Mr. and Mrs. Nyland. But Nyland was Charlie's last name. Her parents were Lindstrom's. It's kind of amazing that this goof got past all of the staff, all of the writers, and all of the actors. And it implies incest. It implies a lot of weird stuff going on there. Somehow, in all of their years living together, Rose never told the girls she was adopted. It wasn't a secret she was keeping or anything. She just forgets it's part of her life because she's so close with her parents. But before they came along, she would spend her days dreaming about who her biological parents were, just like the other kids did. As she thought more and more about what her parents maybe looked like, should they ever show up at the door to take her home, she started to develop a clear idea in her mind of what her father looked like. Then, on one of the orphanage's movie outings, Bob Hope came on the screen. He matched her vision perfectly as to who her father was, so she shouted out at the man on the screen that that's her father. The girls are left shaking their heads, unsure how to even proceed with this information. Checking that she's moved on from such fantasies, Blanche asks if she still believes Bob Hope is her father. They can laugh at her all they want, but holding on to, no pun intended, Hope got Rose through some very dark and lonely days. If she was ever feeling lost, alone, or unable to solve a problem, she would turn to him. Maybe she'd write a letter or just go to see one of his movies. But no matter how she tried to connect with him, it always seemed to help her solve the issue she was dealing with not dissimilar to the placebo effect of Dumbo's feather. Because of the track record, she knows Bob won't let her down, and she will find a way to get him on the show. Dorothy isn't sure if she should cry at how sweet and innocent that story is, or if she should send Rose to a mental facility to get a checkup. 
Rose has never met the man she thinks of as her father, but she's excited to do so and knows that she will once she writes him about the event. After Rose leaves, Dorothy, even more hopeless than three minutes ago, bursts out into sobs, knowing the event is only going to get worse. Ellen burst out? (laughs) Not quite. But Coco, as an adopted boy, you didn't spend time in an orphanage. You were in foster care, is that correct? Immediately, yeah. For about three months? Three months, I believe, and then I was picked up. So obviously you have no memory of that time. Correct. How old were you when you learned you were adopted? I think I was six or seven, maybe. I think six. Was there like a sit-down conversation or it just kind of always existed? Yeah, I don't think we'd ever talked about it before then. But yeah, I don't know if they just sat me down one day and talked to me or if uh, if my sister had mentioned something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the circumstances that brought that about, but they just felt it was the right time to do it. And they just explained what that was. And I thought that was great. I've always thought that. That's cool. Yeah. Did you have any inkling before that? that? No, none. There was a difference or anything? No, nothing like that. Yeah, nothing. And my sister and I were both adopted and from different different mothers. But we look like siblings. Your whole family. It's crazy. Yeah. You really. Somehow. And you, you act so much like your dad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really the nature versus nurture kind of a thing. Yeah. And you're so much like your dad. And yeah, you and your sister look so much alike. There's really, I forget sometimes. Yeah. So I don't know. That's always been a, a really nice, just kind of added thing that happened is that, yeah, we, we look related. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, yeah, being adopted has always been very cool to me. I mean, I remember it, it always made me kind of interesting to other kids. Mm. Like, what's that like? And mm. also sort of like, oh, I wish I had different parents right. than these kids. Not that I do. Did you ever have a similar fantasy? Like, picturing what your birth parents looked like you know I know you've since met your birth mother but before that or you know maybe through teen years those harder times did you ever picture them or connect to them through your mind if that makes sense I avoided thinking about that sort of stuff I knew that I had uh, I knew just very little limited information about my biological mother there was a um a letter that the adoption agent through the state of California had given my parents with just a, kind of some basic information about her. So I knew just just limited things, and I knew that I had an older sibling. I was my mother's second baby, but she was very young when she had her first, and I think she had just turned 18, or I believe, when she had me, and she didn't have like a support structure for that, so she just could not manage having two kids at once. So, so she made the unselfish choice. Yeah. And a very difficult choice. I've, you know, I have met her since then. We've spent some time together. And yeah, talking about that, I know that that was that was a pain that just that just remained with her. Mm -hmm. And she thought about me all the time, every day. But and, and, you know, technology, my God. Yeah. Thank God. It was ancestry that connected us because you've now met all your siblings and yeah, I found out I have family. I found out that I was one of seven children. Yeah. So I have six half siblings out there. Uh, that I've met, I've met them all. Yeah. So, and they're all they're 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 great. They're and I really, really cool. appreciate. I don't know if you've purposely made an effort to, but I've heard it from you. So I've made the effort to that you've said your mom put you up for adoption. Yeah, I say placed. Placed, placed in adoption. Yes, placed is the is, never gave up. Or that was the old way to say it. Yeah, because it wasn't that she she made. I mean, I'm yeah. She's 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 just a lovely person a really uh, kind soul and 
I really am, yeah, really grateful for her. I mean, I've, yeah, I got to live, you know, mm -hmm. I got to be here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. she didn't keep you in a situation that she knew she wouldn't be able to care for you, yeah. which could have led to who knows what. And she, yeah, she made that incredibly difficult choice, but look how it turned out. I think that's why I always enjoyed movies where a baby is put in a river, like in the Bible or whatever, like mm, Willow. Willow. Yeah. But then they get, but then they're in the family that needs them. Ooh, that made me emotional saying that. Well, yeah, because Willow is a really good metaphor for it. She's got these wolves coming and she knows she can't protect the baby and she has to do this thing and hope for the best. And then you and Willow both ended up being picked up by lovely families and cared for. Well, it wasn't. Well, Willow's what's his name? The baby is Alora Dannon, please. Oh, that wasn't Willow? Willow oh, is, yeah. Willow, Willow is, finds uh, the baby. Yeah, is, oh, uh, I haven't seen name? it in a long time. That's right. Warwick Davis. That's right. Well, but, still, but you're that baby. Yes, I'm sorry to correct you, but yes. No, I'm glad I am, you did. Yes, I am the baby. I am Alora Dannon. Don't go near it. We don't know where it's been. Absolutely. Under no condition whatsoever is anyone in this family to fall in love with that baby. Hey, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing those things with us. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, they're important. I'm, I love talking about it because I, um, well, I think people shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I, you know, watching this episode, you can see that there was a lot more um, stigma. Stigma to it. Yeah. yeah, it had to be a secret. It was shameful. Yeah, it's always been a badge of honor for me. Yeah, I, I, I wear it like armor, and I wear it with pride. Yeah, because it is cool. <laughs> yeah. I think it's cool. I, I mean, we adopt pets. There's no shame in that game. Yeah. Adopt a baby. And you were like chosen. Yes. Yeah. My my parents met me. Um like, that's and they my were boy. Like, Whoa. This guy's got the stuff. <laughs> well, I was very cute, baby. Well, yeah. Duh. Oh, so cute. Maybe we'll put a baby picture on the Instagram. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's a very cute picture of me holding a little blue ball in my little my little outfit. I look very cute. And I'm uh you can see, well, I'm bald in that picture. Bald now. Full circle, diapers to diapers, amen. We'll push it downstream and forget we ever saw it. It's a new day, and it's time for a meeting of the Ladies' Auxiliary Club in the girls' living room. Dorothy has pulled up a chair and is swimming in some cream pants and a matching cream sweater and a huge yellow sweater vest thing that is weighing down atop it all. Next to her is Blanche in her stunning blue dress with black accents. Hosting the meeting is Phyllis, played by June Clayman. She acted in It's a Living, Bold and the Beautiful, Beverly Hills 90210, Frasier, Party of Five, Diagnosis Murder, and Days of Our Lives. She is happy to announce that the group's bake sale raised enough funds for the Cult Deprogramming Center, which one of the ladies' sons has been sent to. How 80s of them. And he is now back to pursuing a law degree. Now it's time to move on to an update about the Hospital Variety Show benefit. Oh, so the proceeds are going to the Biscayne Bay, if I had to guess. This means it's time for Dorothy to admit that it's all going to pot. Hesitantly standing in her flesh boots, Dorothy chokes on her stammering words about the show. Before she can really get into detail, a real bitch stops her. This is Frida, and she's being played by Linda Rand, who has appeared in WKRP in Cincinnati, Knight Rider, Murder, She Wrote, Reform School Girls, My Two Dads, and Dragnet. For being a ladies' auxiliary club, you'd think they would want to build each other up, but this is an older generation, so it's all about tearing each other down, which this woman does with her, I hear you aren't selling any tickets, and I hear you've got no talent, and I hear the weatherman is out. 
Yeah, well, Blanche has heard this woman is having an affair with her landscaper. There's no need to mention his heritage, Blanche, but thanks for coming to Dorothy's defense. As the other big-haired, horribly-dressed women react and whisper about Blanche's bombshell, she gets the meeting back on track. She claims the show is fine, and they are even in talks with celebrities to host. When asked who, Dorothy isn't sure what name to pull out of her hiney to shut these women up. Before she can say anything, Ellen has come bursting through the front door. You're going to go to hell. You have always had a nasty mouth, you stupid sinful girl. Oh, she was moving so fast I couldn't tell that it was Rose coming in. And without any ado, she shouts out that Bob Hope will be the MC for the event. The ladies can't be bothered to ask for details or literally anything else. So with that bit of good news, the meeting is adjourned and the guests skedaddle. Once alone, the girls are shaking with excitement to learn how this all came to be. Well, Rose simply called his office. We don't get any further because Sophia and the great Alfonso have returned. The girls try to get back to the Bob Hope story, only hearing that Rose didn't talk to Bob himself. Back to Sophia, who only cares about showing the girls their newest trick, which involves keys, Dorothy gladly hands hers over, which she has pulled from the saggy kangaroo pouch on her drapey yellow thing. And no, Rose didn't really talk to Bob's agent. She talked to an NBC receptionist. While Seymour slash Alfonso focuses on a key, Dorothy shouts out how stupid it all is, this whole Bob Hope thing, which Alfonso thinks is a misdirected dig at his dumb trick that he defends. Blanche is pissed that they made this announcement based on nothing. Dorothy feels they need to go tell the ladies that Bob Hope won't be involved. As Seymour declares, voila, that the trick is done, an annoyed Dorothy snatches the keys out of his hands and the three girls start to leave. They are quickly back, though, when Dorothy realizes the trick was bending all of her keys into useless oblivion, leaving the great Alfonso with a smile and Sophia with a smirk. Even though it's the same day and the girls were all leaving together to go talk to the group, when we're back in the kitchen, it's Sophia and Blanche at the table who then ask an arriving Dorothy how it went with the group. Hmm. To say it didn't go well would be an understatement. They actually booed her. Her fear of being embarrassed has come true, and this is the worst bout of it she's ever experienced. Support of Sophia reminds her how great she is and to not worry about such meaningless things. Just kidding. She reminds Dorothy that she's been embarrassed not only more than this, but more often, like that time she tried out for cheerleading. And let's not forget the time she went to a nudist colony. Before we get to hear about the cheerleading story, Dorothy cuts her off. She doesn't understand why her mother shows support by being mean for her own sick entertainment. Sophia only does it because they don't have cable, which doesn't seem right based on the shows they've mentioned in the past, and that she can't crochet, which definitely isn't right, as we have seen her doing it or knitting in the past. The real answer is that she is an unmedicated bully. The girls have some responsibility to take for their own as to how the show is going, but they're feeling extra annoyed at all of the drama Rose has caused with Bob Hope. If she hadn't made her announcement, they wouldn't have had to backtrack and they could have just found someone without looking incompetent. Blanche is most disturbed that Rose's fantasies consist of figuring out who her father is or talking to Bob Hope, and not a normal fantasy like picturing naked Argentinian cowboys riding big-eared, saggy-skinned Brahma bulls while putting their whips to use. 
Like the cowhand and his pony on our western plains, the gaucho and his horse are a highly skilled team of athletes. To his job, the gaucho brings a body hardened by outdoor life in the saddle and a fine coordination of mind and muscle attuned to split instant reactions. No matter how superbly conditioned he may be physically, the gaucho's absolutely lost a foot. Breaking a horse is more than a sport to him. It's an absolute necessity. And it's a toss-up whether man breaks horse or horse breaks man in the general vicinity of the collarbone. Then it's a matter of a few seconds, and apparently the iron doesn't burn much more than the surface because the calf doesn't protest much. Dorothy isn't sure if that fantasy is any better, and now she's reminded to not share towels with Blanche. I don't know why they ever would have in the past. They each have like four bathrooms to themselves, but okay. All of this reminds Sophia of a story from back home. Again, not asking anyone to picture anything. She just talks about her friend Florence, who thought the local bootmaker, Alberto, was her brother. There was nothing special about either of them or the circumstances. It's just a similar story that she's sharing over a cup of tea. Sorry she's not as entertaining as the 1910 book or, more importantly, the 1986 musical Phantom of the Opera by Andrew Lloyd Webber, the man who brought us cats, so you know it's good. I know literally nothing about this show or story. What I do know is some of the music is featured in one of my favorite viral videos with a long-snouted rodent singing its little heart out. Do you know Phantom of the Opera? I know there's a guy who has like a kind of mask over an eye and he hides in the rafter. Is he frogging at the stage? Is that his deal? I believe he's frogging in the rafters of the opera house. And I know that the chandelier comes down Oh, at some point Does in the show. Does it kill somebody? I think maybe someone's writing it. I don't know. Is he a villain? I don't know. Because he sounds like a creep. I think he might be an anti-hero, but I honestly, I don't know. I'll never know. (laughs) Sophia is also lacking the prose of one William Somerset Maugham, who was the writer of short stories, novels, and plays. He is best known for The Moon and Sixpence and The Razor's Edge. Fed up with the lack of respect and appreciation, Sophia shouts about staying quiet and still like a pincushion. Now that she's done with her little tantrum, Rose has come in and asks if anyone has called. Anyone named Bob Hope, perhaps? Beyond annoyed, Blanche requests Rose to stop being an idiot, which is like asking a rainbow to stay in a jar or for the sun to not set. Unwilling to give up, Rose believes, no, she knows Bob will show up. Reminding her that Bob isn't Santa who will show up and save the day like the 1947 film Miracle on 34th Street, Dorothy demands Rose grows up and moves on. Sounding not very different from Sophia once again, Dorothy lays it out. Rose's father is not Bob Hope. He doesn't even know she exists, and he certainly won't be at their show. That doesn't dampen Rose's spirits. She shows the girls that Bob is in the newspaper for being in Miami for a golf tournament. She accepts the apologies that no one makes and promises them that she knows, deep down, he will be there for her. All of this gives Blanche an idea. She suggests that they go to the golf event and plead their case to him directly. He's known for doing work for charity, for example, the golf event. So maybe if they just ask him, he'll do it. Rose laughs at their effort. 
They don't need to go talk to him. She has sent out the hope signal and he will be there. You just need to have faith. Dorothy responds that saying what Rose needs is a mental health professional who is up for the challenge of working with her. Holy moly, it's a new location and it's full of naked men. Okay, not naked naked. This is still network television, but men are coming in and out of showers with only towels around their tight, wet bodies. One such man has approached three men sitting at lockers in this hideously pink mauve 80s locker room, and he's asking to borrow some shaving cream. That half-naked man is Patrick Stack. Though Patrick has just 22 credits, he has been in some big shows. Starting out with Greatest American Hero, he went on to appear on Trapper John M.D., Cheers, Dynasty, Simon & Simon, It's a Living, and most recently in the short film Hands In from 2020. In one of the more iconic moments of the show and in Drag King history, the man in the middle stands and reaches for the Barbasol. Turning around to give it to the man, we see that it's Dorothy hiding out in the locker room as a man. Next to her on a stool is Rose, and on the other side is Blanche. Rose is rocking a light yellow bucket hat, a light yellow polo with horizontal stripes, a green cardigan, and white, black, and light pink plaid pants. Dorothy has a newsboy cap, blue windbreaker jacket, and green, black, and red plaid golfer's pants. Blanche has her hair tucked into a yellow newsboy cap. She's got a seafoam green polo on under a yellow argyle sweater and matching greenish pants. It is all spectacular. The highlight for me being Rose's pants tucked all the way up under her titties. For Dorothy, this is all overwhelming. She's never been in a men's locker room, let alone for the purpose of stalking a celebrity. Rose feels the same way, but maybe with a little more excitement. Not only has Blanche been in a locker room, she's been in that one as she starts to go on about her appreciation for the upgrades they've made, like new carpet. Pulling up her socks, she backpedals, playing off that she too has never been there. This feels too nuts. What makes them think one of the biggest stars in the world would want to talk to them, especially when they look like late professional golfer who was one of the biggest players for nearly 40 years, Sam Sneed, if he was dealing with estrogen issues? Hopeful that spreading out will help, Blanche heads off to the jacuzzi to look for Bob, or more likely just to take a look for herself at the man's stew. Not remembering who she's talking to, Dorothy reminds her that she doesn't know where the hot tub is. Of course she does. It's the second door down the hall. Remembering that she's supposed to be dumb about the location, Blanche says, I'll just ask someone. When Rose stands, the unnatural shape of her body with squished boobies and high pants earns a chuckle from the audience. And it brings back memories for me of my grandfather because he looked and had his clothing that exact way. Picture much bigger belly, though, and obviously less boobies. But the pants were never lower than that. That sounds pretty cute. It was cute. <laughs> A little bald man. <laughs> Coming to the realization of how ridiculous all of this is, Dorothy has a moment. In all of her years knowing Rose, she has heard some dumb and crazy things, and she's even participated in some dumb and crazy things. But this, all of this is too much, even for her. This even tops the story of Clovis, the two-headed donkey who skied backwards down buttermilk. It was cottage cheese. Returning to the locker room, Blanche has bad news. She just watched Bob get into a limo and leave for the airport. Information Rose refuses to believe because he wouldn't leave town the day before the event. 
Rose pushes back and pushes back, but after taking a moment to look at the girls, she has a moment of clarity. Maybe, maybe she's wrong. Maybe she's been holding on to a fantasy because of what it meant to her childhood, but she has to let it go. Bursting into tears, Dorothy pulls Rose into her shoulder and Blanche squats down to surround her in a hug. Just then, two more half-naked men come walking through the carpeted locker room. Yuck. And they bless us with an oh boy. After spotting the three men huddled and crying, one says they simply must remove the antique dealer, a.k.a. gay man, from the team that decides membership. Ew. Maybe we can introduce this guy to Barbara Thorndike and they can live a bigoted life together. Oh my heck, another new location? We don't see much from the outside, just some columns and people, but we hear some clamoring guitars and know right away it's the triplets busting out the 1966 Nancy Sinatra hit, These Boots Are Made For Walkin'. Inside, on stage, we find the triplets. Their hair, makeup, and booties and guitars all the same, but their dresses are now short, light blue, with dark sparklers and some tiny fringe on the skirt. Dorothy has taken the MC job herself and happily wraps up the ladies' performance with a joke that she inexplicably pulls from her pocket? Why, those boots they were singing about probably have more miles than the star of Dynasty, a.k.a. the most beautiful woman in the world, the world's sexiest woman, and England's most beautiful girl, Joan Collins's waterbed. This rightfully does not earn a laugh. Were those things all true about Joan Collins? Yes. She was like, she has been named those things. What was she? She was named the most beautiful woman in the world. Okay. The world's sexiest woman. Okay. And England's most beautiful girl. Okay. I didn't dig into who gave her those titles, but she's earned them. (laughs) Silence. Even though they didn't see the whole act with both brothers, Dorothy trusted the Skarletovich boys to bring a good show, so she permitted them to perform. Only one issue. There still isn't a second brother. At this point, Dorothy can't care, so she waves the solo performer in his ruffled shirt, plaid vest, and black pants to the stage. Once again, it's just Micah. Once again, he's shouting, hey, and juggling. Backstage, Sophia inquires about the great Alfonso's time slot, but Dorothy can't let him go out there. This isn't right, Sophia argues. They had a deal. The triplets performed without cost, so he gets a moment in the limelight. Even Rose is against it, saying that he'll just be an embarrassment. Ouch. Sophia is not cool with this. Besides, if Alfonso ever felt embarrassment, he would probably start by getting rid of the hair in his ears. On top of all of this, he was able to get his partner from his vaudeville days to show up, so now it's a two-person act. Hearing boos from the crowd, Micah comes through the curtain with a look of disappointment. Dorothy knows the act is better with the brother. After he storms off, she realizes the talent can't get much worse than the man throwing things at a not-present brother, so she might as well let Alfonso and his partner perform. With that, and without a proper introduction, she waves him on stage. Rose in a pink skirt and peplum top and Dorothy, looking like the mother of a solid gold dancer, are both shocked when Sophia drops her black cape to expose a black and gold outfit perfect for a magician's assistant. Arriving with urgent news, Blanche is there again in all blue. And the news she has is bad, which doesn't surprise Dorothy. Pointing to a stack of papers, she shows how the program for the event still showed that Bob Hope would be there. 
something Rose was supposed to remove, but she couldn't bring herself to not believe that he would come through. Listed in the credits is Cynthia Lee Clark as a seamstress. I'm not sure where this is. Perhaps she's the woman working on a costume backstage behind everybody? It seems odd that she would get listed without having any lines, but the two guys who did have lines, although they were homophobic, weren't listed. So, about Cynthia Lee Clark. She was a former Miss Chicago who went to nursing school before becoming a firefighter and paramedic. She has 58 acting credits that include, but are not limited to, Passions, Moonlighting, Highway to Heaven, Cagney and Lacey, Twilight Zone, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. What's more, she's appeared alongside the girls five times. In season three, she was an uncredited IRS agent. She was riding a train in Yokel Hero. She'll be playing a houseless person next season at Christmas. And in the final season, she'll be a court reporter in Ebb Tide 6. With soft, circusy music playing for the great Alfonso, Rose says that she'll go out to announce to the audience that Bob won't be there. The programs were her responsibility, and she was the one that started this whole rumor anyway. She watches as Alfonso assists Sophia into a large box on the stage. After the door closes, the girls run out and Rose stops the show. Alfonso's fine with it. He needs a moment to remember the abracapocus, hocus-dabra stuff that he's supposed to say. Front and center, Rose looks out to the good people and the mean women who are raising money for the hospital. She takes the responsibility for the evening, that she was silly about her expectations and she shouldn't have left the programs as they were. She thought that they were going to be greeted by her sentences cut off when Alfonso remembers the word is presto. And with that, the door opens to reveal the end of Rose's sentence. How about a big hand for the voice of America? We've talked about old Bobby Boy several times. The girls loved referencing him and guests loved appearing on his shows. I don't even really know where to start with the award-winning entertainer. He started in vaudeville and went on to shape television. He hosted the Oscars 19 times. He wrote 14 books. He starred in over 50 films and on stage. He was known for his tireless work with the USO, putting on 57 classic performances for our service people. He was the ultimate multi-hyphenate as a boxer, prolific golfer, writer, comedian, dancer, singer, and actor. He got his start as a blackface-wearing Siamese twin impersonator danced him with a friend. Oh, boy. They had been hired by Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, whose fascinating criminal case you can read all about in Best New True Crime Stories, Crimes of Famous and Infamous Criminals, in which my story, Life of the Party, is featured. Fun fact, Bob was actually born in London and came to America when he was four. Another fun fact, he was quite the ladies' man, known to have several different women that weren't his wife on his arm every night, even when he was into his 80s. On the good news side, he was a philanthropist, creating and raising funds for the Bob Hope Fight for Sight Fund. If you're going to philand, you'd better also philanth. In his nearly 80-year career, he earned over 2,000 awards and honors. These honors include, but are not limited to, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Gold Medal, Oscars, honorary doctorates and degrees, and dozens of buildings that are named after him. He accomplished a lot in his 100 years of life. He was also kind of a jerk, but, you know, he did some good stuff. The darn Burbank Airport. What about it? 
Bob Hope. Oh, is it called Bob Hope Airport? It was. I don't know if it still is, but it it was. Well, it should be if we still have to have John Wayne, who was like an outright racist. He was going to beat up Sashin Littlefeather. Right. Welcome to beautiful Burbank, California, home of more year-round Halloween stores than any other city in the world. Do you like Jack in the Box? Then you're in luck. We've got six of them. If you've ever wanted to visit a place where you can hear the freeway from literally every spot in town, then Burbank is for you. Buy a house with a second floor no one got permits for, and then watch the 98-degree winter nights tick by through rusty bars on your windows. Pay L.A. prices for Orlando amenities in Burbank. Bob could have technically been Rose's father, but he would have had to get her mother pregnant when he was just 18 or 19. Not that that's impossible or anything, but a little young. Seeing Bob on stage, Rose is aghast. Dorothy is delighted, and Blanche is turned on. Approaching the dashing man, Blanche is nearly out of breath at how close they are. They're so close, Bob barely has room for his keys. For how famous he was for his affairs, it's hard to imagine the two of them never had a moment in real life, if you know what I'm talking about. Like a USO show or a late-night appearance, Bob gets into a comedy routine at the request of Dorothy. He's happy to entertain the group. He didn't put on all of, and we mean all of that makeup, just to go bowling. He starts out by roasting his good friend, former president, and ruiner of most things related to the current American life, Ronald Reagan. But at that time, he was just another unemployed actor in Los Angeles. While history has shown us different, at the time, Reagan was as popular as Tammy Faye Baker at a makeup convention. Back to the girls. They're talking about how this even happened. It was all thanks to Sophia, not Rose. It turned out Alfonso's vaudeville partner had been Bob Hope. Oh, my God, was Alfonso wearing blackface and doing Siamese twins dancing. (gasps) Oh, boy. I just realized that. Bob is still cracking jokes about Reagan and how since he went back to Cali, there have been daily earthquakes, possibly because God is a Democrat. But Ronald doesn't care about earthquakes. Reagan was known for interacting with reporters in the Rose Garden because that was sometimes the only way they could get to him. Notoriously, Sam Donaldson, the White House reporter at ABC, would yell questions at Reagan and would get yelled at in response. It was tense, to say the least. Well, if that's the woman, you tell her to shut up. We'd like the clothes now. We don't have the clothes yet. I haven't written the clothes yet, mothers. Get your hands off me. Don't you grab me and don't you touch me. You understand that? You want to come to the Northwest Gate with me, Mr. Donaldson? Get your hand off me. I used to say I think Ronald Reagan could have passed a polygraph test on anything he said because he believed it. He wasn't trying to obfuscate or lie or anything like that. He believed it. Just much of it wasn't the real world. But he was an interesting person. Realizing everything has worked out, Blanche offers an apology for not trusting Rose. But Rose is actually realistic about all of it. This wasn't her doing. It was only a coincidence. What she's learned from this is to not daydream about things like this anymore. Still going on Reagan, now Bob is saying that the throat goat Nancy is worried that since he's retired, he won't have as much free time as he did when he was president. Yuck. From the wings and with a smile, Rose looks out at Bob and tells her dad, thank you. Coco, this was your first viewing of this episode, yes? It was. And? I loved it. It was a great episode. Very energetic, packed with jokes. 
Um, they seem to really, the writers seem to really, and the performers seem to really bring it because Bob Hope was there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet he's waiting in the wings. Oh, yeah. And you got to, I mean, you got to kill it. Yeah. You got to kill it when, when Robert, is his name really Bob Hope? No, his name is Leslie Towns Hope. Oh, wow. Yeah, this episode grew on me. I don't know why I wasn't always super fond of it. Well, I don't really love Bob Hope, uh, especially his performance in this. Like, no offense, I get that he's like, the greatest comedian of the 20th century or, you know, whatever. It's just very stiff and very, you, you're watching him read the cue cards. Yeah, it's very obvious. And so I don't know if that's just him out of his element, you know, that he's not doing stand-up where it maybe has a little bit more freedom. It was very tight. So maybe that's it. So I didn't always love this episode, but yeah, watching it again with you, and it's been a long time since I've seen this one, to see all of it again, the the golf outfits and oh that was a great that was so funny they looked so cool <laughs> yeah they did oh man and just so the energy mm-hmm. of everything i mean like you said it's just really go 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 and everyone's involved in the same thing which is always more fun it always works out better yeah. for a story but it really grew on me this time for as fun and silly as this episode is there are a lot of important topics that are touched on first off adoption It wasn't talked about as much as it is today. So to have a beloved character come out, in a sense, halfway through a series, it was a, perhaps accidental, positive example of someone being adopted, saying, look, you love Rose. She could have been anyone's child. So you could bring home a child who you love and adore as much as you do her. It also made space for the conversation of how far you let a comforting fantasy go. Rose shared how important Bob was to her childhood, But as they got closer to talking with him, she realized maybe that was childish. But she never gave up on that comforting idea, and that's okay. Everyone is permitted to go to fantasy land now and again, as long as you don't get lost there. And of course, supportive friends. The girls weren't sure what to make of Rose's story in the beginning. Then they were fully on board. But when they realized it wasn't going to work out, they weren't angry or judgmental of Rose. They held her and let her cry. Most importantly, they had hope. They hoped for a good show. They hoped Bob would show up. They hoped that they would raise money for the hospital. Holding on to the sliver of hope they did, it wound up working out. So see the hope, keep your supportive friends, and keep dreaming. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we're put through the ringer with Fiddler on the Ropes. It's good when it's 15 takes for one opening paragraph. I feel like that's a good. That was a pretty good Ricky Ricardo. (laughs) I couldn't tell the difference. (laughs) Was that a peewee alarm? Without any further argument, Dorothy dismisses the triplets and asks for the next event to audition. Event? You wrote Ferris wheel. Did you mean testicle? (laughs) I did, actually. Thank you, Grammarly, you weirdo. Grammarly's a little freak to Santa. He looks like a powerful lover. (laughs) I don't think that's it. You sound like a... Hold on now. Hold on now. (laughs) Hold up. (laughs) I'm sorry.
but I simply cannot do it alone. Along with Shannon Doherty and the Smurfs. Oh my God. Oh my God. I need a minute. Yeah. What's wrong with me? What has happened to my brain? Am I sick? Am I dying? Is it a tumor? It's not a tumor. Sing for me. What I'm saying is... You don't know. ...up after it. You don't have to tell me. I have ears. I got headphones. I got cans on my head connected to this gosh damn microphone telling me how stupid I sound every time I open my mouth and can't say the words that I'm trying to say. And no, I didn't drink anything because I can't have a sloppy mouth. I mean, if I was working at TSA, I think I'd probably like take snacks out of people's bags and eat them I would, for my lunch every I'm day. I'm too curious. I would have to stop everyone. I I, it's I like, have to look in. I, I have permission to look in everyone's bag. Everybody's getting screened. You knock off the flights for the entire country. <laughs> I got to see. Be like, what's this? Oh, why are you traveling Ooh, with that? Where did, you, where did you buy this? This, this is, is cute. cute. <laughs> Willow. Learning about Rose being adopted is just a very warm feeling inside of me. It it's it felt good to be like I know she I mean, she's a fictional person, but that we're kin in that way. Yeah, you have a kindred shared thing, a very deep personal. Yes, thing. yeah, yeah. That's just a good that just that just felt really good to to be to be yeah to see that. that and it's cool. like a special yeah. little club, you know, such a small percentage of it really people is, watching yeah. are mm -hmm. in that club, and you know you get to be in that with her. I love you. I, I even have a present for you. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.